0: Good morning. I'm glad you're here. What a wonderful time of worship. Thank you for allowing me to share in that time with you. I have been trying for several weeks to get back into our study of Nehemiah. And um, things just seem to keep happening, painful things, that keep leading me away from jumping back into that. Um, If you'll just allow me a point of personal privilege today, it's been a bit of a devastating week for some of us on the campus of North Greenville University. Um, Received word early Friday morning that two of our fairly recent graduates, um, young couple uh, that really my kids grew up with, my oldest kids grew up with that these students, uh, were like my own kids. They were in our home. Um, they went with me on a trip to Turkey. They went with me on a trip to Northern Cyprus. Uh, we watched them get married, uh, have kids. It's just one of those wonderful things that you get to see working with students and receive word Friday morning that this young couple was killed in an automobile accident leaving behind a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-month-old. The miracle was they were all in the vehicle together, and the children uh, survived, but with all of the attending questions and heartache that goes along with that. And I just got to tell you, after what we've been through here at Taylor's over the last couple of weeks, um, I found myself this week just... If I can just be gut level honest with you this morning, just saying to God, okay, God, when is this going to end? When, when is this going to end? It's just one thing after another, after another, after another. And God spoke to me rather forcefully uh, and told me I should not be asking when this was going to end. What I really should be asking is, how is this going to end? Because there's a a strong promise that comes with the realization of how all of this uh, that we face in this life is going to end. And so I want to do something this morning I had not planned on doing, but I'm going to tell you for me, I need this. I I hope it's encouraging to you this morning because I want to talk about heaven I want to talk about heaven. I know a lot more people who are there now than I've ever known before. And probably a lot of you do too. And I don't know about you, but the more people that I know who go there, uh, the more I want to find out about it. And the more of a draw I begin to feel toward that place as well. And I, I just pray this morning this will be just an encouraging and helpful study for you. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you do, let me invite you to take them and open them to the 21st and 22nd chapters of the very last book in the Bible, the Apocalypse, the Revelation of John. And we're gonna look and see what God's Word has to say to us. About heaven and we want to make sure as we look at this that we are not going to base what we think heaven is about on speculation rather we want to base our understanding of what heaven is like on revelation God's revealed word to us I can tell you through a lot of years of ministry I've heard some wild speculation about what heaven is going to be like. I've heard folks say that we're going to we're going to sprout wings and we're all going to fly around in heaven. Well, that is speculation. You can't find that in scripture. Some have suggested that whatever it is we have enjoyed here on earth, we're going to enjoy even in an even greater fuller way in heaven, whether that's fishing or painting, or endless rounds of golf, or whatever it is. (laughs) Well, that too is speculation. God's Word doesn't give us any indication that that's what heaven is going to be like. There was a dear lady in a, a church that I pastored formerly who came up to me one day and said, Pastor, let me tell you what I believe. I believe in heaven. I'm going to be able to eat as much as I want of whatever it is I want, uh, as often as I want, and I'm never going to gain a single pound. Well, I guess I'll admit that is a heavenly thought, but uh, it is speculation. God's Word makes no such promise. So what is the truth about heaven? Heaven. What does the Bible really say? Well, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22 here. And and really, the Apostle John is going to take heaven, and he's going to sort of sum it up for us in three simple images. Now, this is not speculation. This is revelation. And as far as human language can speak, of heavenly things, John is going to give us some really marvelous insights into heaven. And he begins this way. Here's the first of the three images. John is going to tell us here as we look at these two chapters in Revelation that heaven, first of all, is God's tabernacle. It is God's tabernacle. Now now listen to what John says here in chapter 21, verse 3. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God." What what kind of place is heaven? Well, John tells us that heaven is God's dwelling place. The word he uses here literally is the word tabernacle. Heaven is God's dwelling place. It is his tabernacle. And because heaven is God's tabernacle, there are several things that we can see here. Number one, John says because heaven is God's tabernacle, it is going to be an intimate Place. It is going to be a place of great intimacy and fellowship with God. In the Old Testament, you might remember that the tabernacle was the symbol of God's intimacy with his people around it, camped the 12 tribes of Israel. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 38, you'll read there that the cloud of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle by day, and then at night, there was this pillar of fire, and the Israelites, as as they got up in the morning, as they went to bed at night, day in and day out, uh, as they carried out their daily activities, they were conscious of the tabernacle, of God's dwelling place in their midst. But after that Old Testament tabernacle came God's New Testament tabernacle, his perfect tabernacle. John also wrote about this tabernacle in his gospel, chapter one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, literally pitched his tent in our midst. See, in Jesus Christ, God again tabernacled with his people. Those first disciples walked with Jesus by day. They slept underneath the Palestinian sky with Jesus at, at night. They, they feasted on his words. They marveled at his deeds. And in Jesus Christ, there was intimacy with God. But that Old Testament tabernacle and that perfect New Testament tabernacle are not the final tabernacle because John tells us here that heaven is going to be a place in which the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle of God will descend and the pattern of the incarnation, God dwelling with man will become the pattern for all of eternity. That means the presence of God and the glory of God will be infinitely accessible to you and to me in that place called heaven, we will live in the very dwelling place of God. Heaven is God's tabernacle. And it will be a place of intimacy with Him. I love when we worship here like we worship today. I love it when I can sense the Spirit of the Lord in this place and moving in my heart. But that will be nothing compared to what heaven is like when we sit at the very feet of Jesus, when God tabernacles with us, when he dwells with us, it will be a place of incredible intimacy with God. Because heaven is is God's tabernacle, John also tells us that that heaven is going to be a permanent place. Verse 1 of Revelation chapter 21. There's a little phrase in this verse. I want you to look at it. It's full of significance. It, It may seem to be a strange way to describe heaven, but John says in heaven, there will be no more sea. There will be no more ocean, no more sea. Now you need to understand something about John in order to understand why he would say something like that. I believe as many Bible students do that that John, the beloved disciple, also became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And because of the tremendous persecution of Christians that was taking place in John's day, and because of John's own bold testimony for Jesus Christ, he was exiled to the island of Patmos, placed there by the Roman authorities because of his stand for Jesus Christ. And between John and the church he loved at Ephesus was the sea. It separated, it threatened, it came between John and those he loved. And so when John thought of heaven, he said, There will be no more sea, you see, in the in the in the book of Revelation, the sea symbols separation. It symbols symbolizes uh, that kind of uh, threatening separation between us and and people that we love, and the things helps us helps us realize that the things we have and hold dear can be taken away from us at, at any moment. John says, in heaven, that won't happen. There will be no separation. There will be no sea. Heaven will be a place of permanence. And finally, because heaven is is God's tabernacle, John says it's going to be a happy place, a joy-filled place. And by that, I mean that all of the emotional devastations and physical uh, upheaval of this life are going to be gone. Look at verse 4. Of Revelation chapter 21, it says, And he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I want you to notice something. I want you to notice that death leads the list of those things that will be banished fully, finally, and forever in heaven. And let me tell you, that makes it a happy place, doesn't it? Death. That absolutely... Wretched devastation that has touched every single one of us in some way, shape, form, or fashion. It, 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 it reaches down even and touches the tiny baby, snatching it away from the wondering eyes of young parents, and it claims him. reaches down to the little boy or golden-haired girl and, and the crush of metal against metal, it snuffs out young lives. It comes into the promising years of young adulthood and takes away from an adoring husband a young wife, or leaves behind a young widow. It is death that comes into the golden years of life and steals away a lifelong companion and causes us to face life's final years alone. I want you to know when God tabernacles with man, death will be gone. So much of our time, so much of our time is spent Fearing death, avoiding death, planning for death, waiting for death. In heaven, John says, death will be no more. The the physical disruption, the emotional confusion, the, the spiritual devastation, all of that will be gone forever. I want you to think for a moment about how much time we spend focusing on death. Illness and everything having to do with illness. That's part of our preoccupation with death. Medications, hospitals, all that goes along with safety, all that we have to worry about with transportation, the safety of our homes, the the safety of our children. We are literally prisoners to the presence of death. What would it be like? to never have to deal with any of that ever again. Never fearing for safety again, never fearing for health again, never medication, never hospitalization, none of it ever, ever again. Jesus tells us and John tells us that in heaven there'll be no more death. No mourning, no crying, no pain. When God tabernacles with man, it's going to be a happy place. It's going to be a happy place. It's going to be a permanent place. And it's going to be an intimate place. If you jump down to verse 10 of Revelation chapter 21, the imagery changes here. John is not now picturing heaven as as God's tabernacle, but he's telling us here that heaven is also God's city. Verse 2, we'll look at it first. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, uh, excuse me, verse 2, And I saw the holy city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And if you read on through the chapter 10 more times, the word city is used to describe heaven. And all of the imagery in these verses point to heaven as being God's city what kind of city will it be? well there's several things number one John tells us that that heaven will be a luminous city it will be full of light look at verse 11 describing heaven John says it it, it shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel in other words there was, Light everywhere, luminous, brighter than the sun, shining everywhere. I don't know how many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis, ever read any of his works. He wrote a little book called The Great Divorce. And in that book, C.S. Lewis talks about some folks from hell who took a bus trip to heaven. Now, only C.S. Lewis could probably get away with writing a book like that. But he did. And in that book, he says that the first thing that impressed the folks on the bus was that heaven was a place of great light. These people from hell who were on their way to heaven had to cover their eyes. They screamed with pain. They said, we can't stand it. It's too bright. We want to go back where it's dark. You see, C.S. Lewis understood this imagery of the book of Revelation, which tells us that heaven is a luminous place. Look at verse 23. And that city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is the lamp. Verse 25. There's, there, there's, there's a little phrase here. You'll, you'll just run over it real quick if you don't look carefully, but look at verse 25. John says, there will be no night there. No night. That's significant. Night is the time when we feel frightened. Night is the time when we feel most vulnerable. Our cities are unsafe by night. I mean, I don't know about you, but I would no more walk the streets of New York City or Chicago or Atlanta late at night than I would place my life on the line in front of a firing squad. We fear the night, it is a place of threat. Many of us know what it has been like to stand watch in the night over someone who is ill or dying. We know what it's like in the hours after midnight to be awakened from our sleep by the ringing of the telephone and be gripped by fear and say, oh God, please don't let it be bad news. We know what it's like in the middle of the night to hear a knock on the door and wonder, who could it be? What news could they be bringing? See, night always threatens us, but in God's city, John says, there will be no night. That means there will be no fear because it is a luminous place. And all the things that cause us fear and anxiety and stress, all those things will be gone in God's great city. Because it is God's city, John also tells us that heaven will be a protected place. Look at verse 12. We read of this great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels guarding the gates. Now, we don't think of having walled cities for for protection today, but in those ancient cities of, of John's day, a city that had a wall around it meant that that city was protected. You remember from our study of Nehemiah, that what broke his heart was the fact that the walls of the holy city were broken. And when he got back to Jerusalem from his time in exile, the first thing that he did was begin to to mobilize the people to rebuild those walls because it would mean that the holy city was protected. See, the imagery of heaven tells us that that God's city is is surrounded on every side with walls. Tremendous walls, walls of great thickness. Verse 17 tells us the thickness. 144 cubits. That's about 65 meters or about 200 feet thick. It means heaven is a protected place. Now what's it protected from? Well, we've already seen that it's protected from death. But it is also protected from sin. Sin. And please don't miss that. It is protected from sin. If you look at verse 27, you'll see nothing unclean will ever enter that city, nor will anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Many of you have probably heard, studied this That because of Jesus' death on the cross, we have been freed from the penalty of sin. He paid that penalty for us. As we grow in Christ and the Holy Spirit begins to work in us and conform us to Christ's image, we are freed from the power of sin. It no longer has dominion over us. But one day, when we stand in the presence of God in His great city, We will be freed from the very presence of sin. It will be no more. I want you to think about that. Never again the disappointment of sin. Never again the shame of transgression. Never again that that struggle over failure and guilt Never again heartbreak because of disobedience. Sin will not be in that place. It is a protected place. And we won't have to worry about sin anymore. But finally, as God's great city, John says heaven is going to be a populous place. God wants a lot of people to be there. He wants a lot of people to be there. Now, we all know Jesus said in Matthew 7, 14, that small is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. And only a few find it. Jesus did say that. But in saying that, listen, he did not mean that heaven is going to be some kind of ghost town. All of the the imagery that we read here in this chapter presents heaven as a populous place, a place that God wants to fill with all kinds of people. If you look at verse 15, you'll read where an angel measures the city with a measuring rod of gold. Verse 16 tells us that the city's laid out like a square, and its dimensions are 12,000 stadia. 12,000 in length, 12,000 in width, 12,000 in height. Now, that that uh, translates to a to a 1500 mile cube. 1500 miles long, 1500 miles wide, 1500 miles high. That's the distance from New York City to Houston, Texas. A huge huge city. Now you might ask pastor, do you, do you really believe that that heaven's fifteen hundred miles long and fifteen hundred miles wide and fifteen hundred uh, miles long? No, no, I, I, I don't. I don't think that's the exact size of heaven. This is symbolic language. The, the The exact size of heaven isn't important. the 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 message here is that heaven is a big place, and God wants a lot of people to be there. maybe maybe some of you have heard the story about uh, the man who went to heaven and he met saint peter and saint peter was giving him the tour of heaven he took him all around and Showed him everything there in heaven, and they were coming to the, to the conclusion of the tour, getting back to where, where they started there. And, and the man noticed that there in this one corner of heaven, there were these huge walls that went up even higher than the ones mentioned here in Scripture, just sealing off this one small corner of heaven. And the man obviously couldn't see what was behind the walls, but he could hear all kind of ruckus, all kind of racket hooping and hollering and all kinds of things going on back there. And the guy said to St. Peter said, what in the world's going on behind there? And St. Peter said, shh, not so loud. Those are the Baptists. They think they're the only ones here. (laughs) Now listen, folks, I'm a Baptist by conviction, okay? But Baptists are not going to be the only ones in heaven. Any person who has deposited his or her faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior of life, every single person who has come to the foot of the cross and said, Lord Jesus, I give you my heart, I give you my life, I need your forgiveness, I wanna follow you, please give me your gift of eternal life, I wanna spend the rest of my life on earth serving you, and I wanna spend eternity praising you in heaven, every single one of those people from every nation, tongue, tribe, and language, every denomination will be there in heaven. Those who anticipated the cross of Christ back in the Old Testament, who looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, and the millions upon millions of others who since then have looked back to the cross, back to Jesus, they're all going to be there. God wants it to be a populous place. Now folks, This ought to say something to you and me, shouldn't it? We ought to be doing every single thing that we can humanly do as followers of Jesus Christ to make sure as many people as possible have the opportunity to hear the gospel and go to that place and experience God's tabernacle and God's city. Because God wants a lot of people to be there. And He has entrusted to you and me the opportunity to share the good news that can get them there. But finally, and I'll close with this John's shown us that heaven is God's tabernacle. He's shown us that heaven is God's city. But finally, he tells us that heaven is also God's garden. God's garden. Now, you won't find the word garden used here. You can look for it, it's not there. Uh, you won't find the word paradise, which refers to a walled garden. But everything John says here in the beginning of chapter 22 means that heaven is God's garden. Look at these verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, and flowing through the middle. Of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. That's a garden. (laughs) I think God loves a garden. History began, if you remember, in a garden. And John tells us history will end and find its ultimate fulfillment in what is described here and symbolized for us as God's garden. Look at what's found there, the water of life and the tree of life. See, John is trying to tell us something here with his imagery. He's trying to tell us that God is going to provide for us everything that we need in heaven. Instead of scarcity, there's going to be abundance. Instead of having to scrounge and scrape and and get by, there's going to be extravagance. All that we need is going to be provided by God because heaven is God's garden. The Bible began with a garden home in Genesis. But as I think back on it, it's it's a sad home. God is there, but because of sin, man is no longer there. The tree of life is there, but because of sin, man has no access to that tree. Man is not there. But the Bible begins that way, but ends by twisting that around and turning it around. Now we're in God's garden. God and man are there. The tree of life is there and we have access to it in that garden. The tragic garden of Genesis has been transformed into the triumphant garden of Revelation. But it didn't just happen. It didn't just happen. You see, the garden in the beginning was transformed into the garden at the end by the garden in the middle. Do you remember that garden? It was called Gethsemane. Gethsemane. It was there that Jesus determined He would take the curse of sin... Upon himself, it was there in the garden of Gethsemane that he cried out, Father, not what I desire, but what you desire. Not what I want, but what you want. And he went to the cross, and because of the garden in the middle, church, there's the garden at the end. So I need to ask you a question this morning as we wrap up our time. Have you, and and only you can answer this question, I want you to ask it of yourself in the depth of your heart this morning. Have you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life and his will in the garden in the middle? That's the only way you'll get to the garden at the end. Jesus said, I am the way. Without me, there is no going. You won't get there. I am the truth, Jesus said. Without me, there is no knowing, no other knowledge, except the knowledge of who I am and what I came to do will get you to heaven. And he said, I am the life. Without me, there is no living. And if heaven would be your home, it will be secured only as you receive the gift of eternal life from Jesus Christ right now. So my question is, have you done that? Have you done that? Heaven is God's tabernacle. It is God's city. It is God's garden. It is a place of great intimacy, permanency. And happiness. It is luminous. It is protected. It is populous. And it is so much to miss. It is so much to miss. Jesus said that He left this earth to go and prepare a place there for you, every one of you. Are you gonna be there? That's the question. Are you gonna be there? We're gonna do something different to conclude the service today and I'm gonna ask Kevin and Scott to come up. Um, This song was sung on Saturday at Grant Harrelson's Celebration of Life service And it just reminds us that if we really know Jesus Christ, we understand how things are going to end, and we have the promise that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So I want you to listen to this song. If you feel led to sing and worship as they do, then do that, and then we're going to have a time of commitment before we're dismissed this morning.